Proverbs 8. We're going to finish that chapter tonight. That was actually my longest sermon in terms of notes I've ever preached. Not time-wise, but 14 pages was... The longest one before that was 13 pages. And uh, that was an interesting one. That was back, you know, when you're not a pastor, you have usually a one shot to get a sermon done. So you, you don't have multiple weeks. And we were in, at our church in Bakersfield, and the pastor was out of town for one Wednesday night. He asked me to preach. And so for some reason, I got in my mind, let's do a, a survey of the entire book of Hebrews in one night. But I only had one night. So I had 13 pages of notes, and I talked so fast to get everything in, because I was like, I can't just stop on chapter 4. I have to get to chapter 13, because I only have this one night. I could ask the pastor. I, now, looking back, I don't know why I didn't ask him for a second week, because he, he would have gladly let me preach, you know, the next Wednesday. But I talked so fast, and uh, uh, one guy came up, and he was a former pastor himself. They recently come back to the church. He told me, he goes, Brother Rick... Let me just tell you, I just want to compliment you. It was a great message. Very, I mean, very studied, very learned. I didn't understand a word you said, but it was great. Just a lot of information, really fast. But uh, so I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I gave him my notes to take home and stuff. Like, yeah, that's my fault. And, he, and he's, he's, I'm sorry to say this, older. So I'm not looking at you, Ruben. Don't look back, Art. How dare you? That is so rude. Boy. We need to have a church discipline council going on. No, just kidding. But yeah, yeah he's like, I didn't, I didn't get a word of it, but it, was, it sounded, from what I heard, really good. But, you know, but I talked so fast, I, I told myself, never have that much again. And then I ended up with that much again. Um, but I, I don't think it went quite as fast this time. But this time I, ha- I had time. Like, you guys are, like, you guys can feel free to leave if I preach too long, but I figure you, I, I have till the next day. So, you know, we might as well just go ahead. And I knew you guys all had sick days. You guys can call off work. Come on. Let's not pretend if I preach till midnight, you have to go to work, okay? Everybody has sick days, okay? Anyways, Proverbs chapter 8, and uh, verse number 22, down to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was, or when there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable parts of his earth. And my delights were with the sons of men. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors, for whoso findeth me, findeth life, and shall obtain the favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. My theme in this chapter has been the personification of wisdom as a divine person. We see that clearly communicated in this section of the chapter, don't we? 
We started off this chapter with the call of wisdom, the call of Christ. It's gone out, the whole world. It stands at the gates. It stands in the highways and it calls out. Then we saw the value of God's wisdom, the value of Christ. Boy, he's worth more than all the treasures of this world, all the money in this world, all the fame in this world. We saw the man who had all the goods and ran out of room and said, I'll build more barns and I'll store more things and I'll take my ease. And God said, you fool. Tonight, your soul's going to be required of you. He didn't have the riches of Christ. The riches of this world cannot compare to the riches of Christ. You see, the millionaire in this world without Christ who dies is instantly a pauper. Pauper. I almost said pauper. Pauper. And the pauper who dies is instantly a king in the kingdom of God. Right? This world, nothing it offers us is worth anything because it's only temporary. It's only temporary. But the riches of Christ are eternal. Can you imagine people who sell out Christ for this world? I mean, Judas for 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. And then he gave it back. And he went to his death. And Jesus said of Judas, it's better for that man that he had never been born. Wow. You think Pilate had a bad judgment? Not nearly as bad as Judas. That's what he told him. The man who delivered me to you has the greater sin. He sold out Christ. But listen, I know people in this world who've sold out Christ for far less than 30 pieces of silver. They've done it for perceived fame, for the almighty dollar, for sexual freedom and liberty. And they leave the church and they leave the faith and they do what's called now deconstructing their faith. The old word is apostasy. And they turn their back on the Lord and they pursue this world. And one day they're going to die and it all comes to an end. And God's going to look down at them and say, you fool, you fool. Christ is far more valuable than this world, far more valuable. C.T. Studd, the missionary to Africa, was a wealthy man at one time. You know that? He inherited a large fortune and a mansion, and he gave it all away to have nothing but Christ. He lived in the jungle for many years. It was a hard life. A hard life he didn't have to live. But he chose the riches of Christ over the riches of this world. And we used to go through many missionaries. Boy, Jim Elliott with his, you ever heard Jim Elliott speak? You know, you can go on, the, on YouTube and listen to some of his sermons. He had a powerful, commanding voice. Handsome guy, square jaw, strong. Had a great charisma, great with youth. He could have been a powerful evangelist. He could have raked in lots of money traveling and preaching. And he walked away from it all. 
His parents tried to get him to stay in America. He said, your condemnation, well, not theirs, but Americans' condemnation is written in the dust on their Bible covers. While these savages have no gospel witness. And he died. And today he's buried in a mass grave with four other guys, three other guys, I think three other guys. Unmarked, unknown in the jungle somewhere. But it was worth it. It was worth it. You have men like George Mueller who could have been very wealthy. Could have been. But chose to live by faith. And oftentimes he had, and we, in the book you read a lot of times about all of the need and the prayers, but there were times that he had lots of money in his account for the orphans, but none for his personal account. And he, didn't, he could have justified, you know what, we're doing the ministry, so we'll just take from the ministry account and live off that. But he didn't do that. And there were times they went without food for a day or two. Though he had money at his disposal, he was trusting the Lord in a particular way. And he found the treasure that brought him greater than this money over here. And we go on and on and on with all these people. And then we look at today, the celebrity preacher nonsense. Selling out the Lord and the gospel. For what? A big flashy church? Big crowds? It's, it's their own version of, of, of um, Star Search. <laughs> Remember that old, that's an old show, 80s. Star Search. Go on there on stage and try to be famous. They want the they want the applause. They want the crowd. They want to tell their funny anecdotal stories and have people laugh. They want to be the center of attention, and they're selling out the gospel to get that. When they stand before Christ, it's not going to matter because most of them are probably unsaved anyways. As Brother Abbott would say, "How long can a saved man preach a false gospel?" Right. And so for their celebrity status, I mean, it's ridiculous. You got like 65-year-old men walking out on stage in skinny jeans and a t-shirt to preach. Someone needs to sit them down and be like, you look ridiculous. But you know what? They love the attention. They love the attention. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have a big church. There are, I know churches of two, three, four, five hundred people that are solid churches. But I mean... It's a show. Do you know how many advertisements I got coming across Facebook the last month for churches in this area? 38. I counted. 38. Advertising Easter egg hunts. Pictures with the Easter bunny. One church described it as this Easter, it's Dance Party USA. Dance Party USA. They're going to dance for the Lord. These are churches. This is real. Well, people, why are they doing that? For celebrity? For gain? For position? Listen, the treasures of Christ are worth more than all of that. If I pastor a church of 20 people for 40 years and die and stand before Christ and have given you the treasures of Christ in the Bible, that's worth far more 
than preaching to crowds of 10,000 dressed like the Easter Bunny. The treasures of Christ. In this section, we see wisdom identified as a divine person. Though it's alluded to earlier in the other parts of the chapter, we see it directly communicated here. Verse 22. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. There are two senses in which this word can be taken, possessed. How you take this verse will decide which side of the Arian controversy you've fallen into. If you're not familiar with the Arian controversy, it was the main controversy of the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, over whether or not Christ was an eternal divine being or whether he was a created being, the first and greatest creation of God. There are still Arians around today, the most famous group being the Watchtower Society. Arius took this word and defined it as created. The Lord created me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. So he would say that the Lord created Christ in the beginning, because Jesus is the subject of the personification of wisdom here. This is the position today of groups like the JWs to take a few, go to Colossians chapter 1. Let's take a few passages and consider them real quick. Colossians chapter 1. We'll get back here to verse 22 in just a minute. Colossians 1.15. I don't want to get sidetracked, but it, it'll help to get a little sidetracked. Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So I won't go too deeply here because I know I've covered this before when we went through Colossians. They take firstborn to mean order of creation. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the first created being. That's how the watchtower, that's how the JWs will define that verse for us, okay? This is not consistent with the argument from Scripture, Okay? We know that Israel was called God's firstborn in Exodus 4.22. And yet they weren't the first nation ever created, were they? No. It was speaking of their position as God's uniquely chosen people. We also see Isaac called Abraham's only son in Genesis 22 verse 2. Take thy son, thine only son Isaac, he said. Again, Abraham had other sons. Right? Ishmael was older than Isaac. Isaac wasn't even the firstborn son, much less, well, he wasn't even the only son, much less the firstborn son. But Isaac was the promised son. So it says, take Isaac, thine only son. He's saying, take your special, unique, chosen son to offer as the sacrifice. It's not birth order on display, it's position. Now, go back to Proverbs 8.22. Proverbs 8.22. I want to show you that in Colossians to show you that this word doesn't always mean created. We see the same dynamic here as we saw in Colossians chapter 1. Arius took the word as meaning created, but this is not correct. Athanasius, the great defender of the Trinity and deity of Christ, took it in the sense of appointing. Right? So you could say, uh, God, uh, I don't want to lose my track of where I'm at in my Bible here. The Lord appointed me in the beginning. 
ordained me in the beginning, chose me in the beginning. These are all compatible words. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament in the first century, translates it, translates it as a declaration that the Father had made the Son the chief, the head, the sovereign over all creation. Both of these interpretations give us what we saw in Israel and Isaac. Right? Position. So he says, the Lord possessed me in the beginning. In other words, the Lord appointed, he chose me to be over creation in the beginning. That's what he's saying. It's not his creation order. It's his position over all things. Before his works of old, before the creation of the world, the son was placed head over all things. This is why we see him called father in Isaiah 9, 6. Turn there real quick. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. If you talk to a oneness Pentecostal, they're going to jump right to this verse. They're going to say, see, Jesus is called the Everlasting Father, so he is God the Father. That's not what's being said in the Hebrew language. This is not a name equating him with the Father. And one way to demonstrate that is to point out that according to John 1.18, the Father was unknown until Jesus came. John 1.18 says that Jesus came to exegete the Father, to teach us of the Father. Which means what? The Father was not known in the Old Testament. So why would they give him a name equating him with a person who's never been told to them yet? Makes no sense. The meaning of everlasting father is father of eternity. In other words, it speaks to Christ being the creator of all things. It's saying the same thing in Romans or Proverbs chapter 8. He appointed me the head over creation from the beginning. And we see that cooperated with John chapter 1, don't we? Yeah. By him are all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, right? By Christ, the one who was appointed or chosen over head, as head over all things, the father of eternity is Christ. Go back to Proverbs chapter 8. So we know when he says the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way. That's actually a verse I've had a Jehovah's Witness go to to show me. See? He's created. And that's a meaning that could be applied there. But it's not consistent with what the rest of the scripture teaches. So to make it Consistent, you have to use words like ordained, chosen, appointed. It's his position, not his creation. Verse 23, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. The term set up here is the same Hebrew wording that we find in Psalm 2, verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. In other words, we're speaking again, Right? Of his appointment. The term in Proverbs 8 means to pour forth like you would pour molten metals into a mold. Before the world was, the Son, the wisdom of God, was anointed and fixed in place over all of creation. That's what he's saying. Verse 24 to 26. When there were no depths, 
I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. He goes into a poetic monologue about the history of God's wisdom. When there were no depths, meaning before the waters first covered the earth, were brought forth, there was the wisdom of God. Remember when the earth was created in Genesis 1? It was all water, right? It was all water. He called the dry land to come forth. He's saying before that, there I was with him, appointed over all things, the very beginning. Because remember, the earth started as a big ball of water. That's when God, you know, called, called it into, into being, it was water. He says, before that, I was already there. I was already appointed. I was already chief over all things. Say, well, where does Christ go back to the beginning? Before the beginning. Before, like Micah 5, 2 says, his goings forth are of old, of everlasting. He's saying, I was already appointed before the world was settled. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills came up, when there was neither earth nor field. This distinction is between wild country and established city. Before anything, there was the wisdom of God. It had been established over all of God's creation. Verse 27. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, by preparing the heavens, he means creating the first and second heaven, meaning, you know, the cosmos. The first heaven is where the birds fly. The second heaven is... Well, the sun, moon, the stars, Mars, Neptune, Jupiter, all those places are at. This is all to shore up the idea of the pre-existence of the wisdom of God. It is over all things and before all things, meaning it's divine. It has to be. When we say God's wisdom is personified, we mean it's personified in a divine person named Christ. Verse 30, that I was by him. As one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. We get a small glimpse into the relationship and love in the Godhead here. I was by him. This means united to him or one with him. There is a perfect unity in the Godhead. You guys understand that? Our minds can't fathom that, can it? We're talking about this morning before church. We get into deep theological stuff Sunday morning before church just to rev ourselves up. You realize that when Jesus was on earth, he was still in heaven? That's mind-boggling. You ever think about that? There's never a time where Christ wasn't in heaven. Because even though he united the divine nature and the human nature, his divine nature is always omnipresent. By definition, it has to be. Meaning that while he was physically on earth, united to his human nature... His divine nature was still present in heaven. Say, Pastor, I don't understand. I'm confused. Me too. I told my wife this morning, it's wonderful. We don't have to understand it. We just have to believe it when the Bible says it. I don't know how that works out, but it does. He was always there. That's why he's here now and there at the same time. There's perfect unity in the Godhead. There's never been a time where the God had, the members of the God had ever disagreed. They're of one mind, one will. 
They exist in perfect harmony. Before the world was, there was God. That's hard for us to conceive that, isn't it? You ever had somebody ask you, what was God doing before the world was created? Well, doing implies time, and time hadn't been created yet, so the question is invalid. <laughs> That's tough. For eternity and eternity and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existed in perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect unity. And they didn't sit around one day going, we are lacking something. Let's create a race of people called man. And that'll really make us better. That didn't happen. We don't add anything to God. We add nothing. He needs nothing. He, in his three divine persons, when I say he, because one God in three persons, which has the right number of fingers there, is in perfect love and perfect unity. So he's saying here, before the world was, before the mountains were brought up, before the earth was laid, before the waters, before everything, I was with him. I was united to him in perfect harmony. There's mutual love and admiration between the persons of the Godhead. They rejoice in one another. They love one another. He says, as one brought up with him. There are two possible meanings here. The one is a, a foster child, like we see in Esther 2, verse 7. Mordecai raised Esther as a, like a foster daughter. This doesn't make sense in context. Another interpretation would be a workman, an artificer. Did I say that word right? That sounded really smart, didn't it? I looked it up and used it. Jeremiah 52, 15 would use it in that context. A workman. The Septuagint translates this phrase as setting things in order. This translation would agree with John 1, 3. All things are made by him. Without him is not anything made that was made. In other words, he was, from the beginning, God's workman. He came up with him. He, he worked for God in the beginning. He brought order to the universe. He brought order to the, the cosmos. The Father willed creation and accomplished his creation through the direct action of the Son. So you say, well, did God the Father create the world or did God the Son create the world? Yes. Yes. Absolutely, he did. Which one? Yes. Absolutely. Because in perfect harmony, all three members of the Godhead willed the cosmos be created. Willed that man be created. Willed that Eden be established. And then Jesus, or the Word at the time you call him in the Old Testament, the Word, he spoke it into being. And the other members of the Godhead rejoiced in the work that he did. He goes on to say he was daily his delight. The Son is the delight of the other members of the Godhead, as they are a delight to the Son. Understand that. We talk about the love of God as this abstract thing, but the love of God is perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and perfect rejoicing within each other. Now, church, think about this. You and I are united to the Son, which means we receive of God the perfect love that God has for the Son. And the rejoicing that the Father and the Spirit have in the Son, the Spirit and the Father have in us who are in Christ. They rejoice in us. 
They love us. They are satisfied with us. Everything God the Father feels for the Son, he feels for you and for me. And feels is kind of a weird word to use because God doesn't have, you know, I'm trying to, the Bible has to personalize, personify God for you because it's so hard for us to grasp God. But the perfect love and rejoicing and unity we find within the Godhead, we find that God has for us because we are in the Son. That's why I can't wrap my mind around these churches that want to teach this works-based salvation. Or even the ones that they won't call it that, right? They'll be like, oh, you're saved by grace through faith. And then all of their service to God is obviously them trying to make God happy with them. Listen, if you're saved today, God is as pleased with you as he is ever going to be. We can't add to that. Because we are in Christ. As long as the Father is perfectly pleased with the Son, He is perfectly pleased with us. Now, He may have to correct us. Our sin does grieve the Holy Spirit, we're told. But in terms of our standing with God, as far as God's concerned, you ready for this? You are the Son, the Son is you. Because we share in the Son's righteousness. We share in his victory. We share in his goodness. We share his position before God. So we stand before God. He's not going to judge us for our sin. What sin? The son has no sin. Therefore, we have no sin. The son has perfect righteousness. Therefore, we have perfect righteousness. I heard this ridiculous person one time talk about the... uh, Revelation, it talks about the, the white robes being given out and the, the white, white robes are the righteousness of the saints. And this ridiculous person, I hesitate to say this from the pulpit because it's so bad and ridiculous. She said, I guess some Christians will be standing there in their underwear before God. In other words, they don't have much Righteousness. Now, that person claims to believe in salvation by by grace through faith. But that statement makes it obvious that she doesn't, does she? She believes that the saints earn their righteousness. Some more, some less. Let me tell you something. The righteousness that's given out in those robes in Revelation is the righteousness purchased by the Son of God. And it's perfect and complete. We don't add to it. We can't take away from it. It's his righteousness. How can you lose that which is not yours in the first place? How? Only way we could lose righteousness is if Christ lost righteousness, which he will not. The only way we could be displeasing to the Father is if Christ is displeasing to the Father and he is not. I think we would be more victorious Christians if we just got a hold of our standing before God in Christ. I think we would pray more. I think we would serve better. I think we would love him more purely if we realize that the perfect love of the Father for the Son is the love of the Father for us. And the perfect pleasing righteousness of the Son is the perfect pleasing righteousness of us. What a glorious truth. We've been brought into that. Undeservedly. Undeservedly. 
I know somebody brought it up last week or Wednesday night in conversation. It goes back to Mephibosheth, doesn't it? What a picture. You realize David had every right to kill Mephibosheth. He was a member of Saul. Like he could have done that and not been wrong in the eyes of God. By the standards of the law, he had the right to kill him. And instead, he brought him to his own table, not the servant's table, his own table, and cared for him, and clothed him, and welcomed him undeservedly. We are Mephibosheth. He had the right to punish, the right to judge, the right to condemn. And he brought us in and sat us at his own table and said, you're mine. You're mine. And as the Father sees me, so will he see you. Church, we've received so much. We've received so much. I'm off topic. I lost my place in my notes. Let's move on. Rejoicing always before him. It could be said that the son rejoiced to do the will of the father. Get back on track here. The father and the spirit rejoiced in the work of the son. So in creation, it was the son's joy to create what the father, the spirit, and the son had willed. And as the spirit and the, the father beheld the work of the son, they rejoiced in the work of the son. It was God's will to save you and me. When we were saved, God rejoiced. And we serve, when we serve God, he rejoices. Not because we're earning something from him. But because we're living out the perfect will of God. And within the Godhead, nothing is more rejoiced over than the will of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We don't get brownie points. You don't. I don't. God rejoices when I take the pulpit and I preach the truth. Because it's a truth that he willed to bring into existence. He rejoices when you're faithful in the pew. When you're out witnessing your daily lives. When we're out at the pier or at the park. You realize we had a visitor today who got attracted from us on the pier on Friday? That's why we share the gospel. So people will come and hear the gospel or read it, right? God rejoices because we're working out, we're living out that perfect righteousness that the Son has given to us. Sanctification is not about making ourselves more acceptable to God or more worthwhile to God. My wife's asleep. I apologize for that. This is, I, should have, I should have rehearsed this better. I love you. Don't worry, Reuben is too. Don't worry. But listen, sanctification is not us becoming more acceptable to God. Sanctification is us in real time living out the perfect righteousness that we have received from God. And God rejoices in that. Verse 31. Rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth, of his earth. And my delight were with the sons of men. His reference to the rejoicing in the habitable parts of the earth is referring to God's rejoicing in the work of creation. God rejoiced at the foundations of the earth. God rejoiced at the creation of man. The Godhead was pleased with creation. Genesis 1.31 
And God saw everything that had been made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Saying it was very good is God's way of saying he rejoiced in it. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. By the way, God rejoices just as much in the new creation. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, the God had rejoiced. It was beautiful. You know why? Because as much as they rejoiced in the first Adam, they knew. They knew he was going to fall. But when that, second, when that second Adam walked out of the tomb, there was great rejoicing because it had finally been accomplished. What man could not do, God did himself. And there was great rejoicing. That's why I said Resurrection Sunday is not a time for somberness. We're not losers, church. That's why we sing that battle hymn of the church. We're victorious. Christ is victorious. And there is rejoicing. The Bible says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. You know why? Because that one sinner is made new and God rejoices in the new creation. He delights himself in it. He delight, his delights were with the sons of men. God made man in his own image and his own likeness. He delighted in mankind whom he put over the works of his hands. Verse 32. I'm almost done, Amy and Reuben. Sorry, guys. Verse 32. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. So after going into the preexistent nature of the wisdom of God, wisdom renews the call to hearken, to listen. In other words, in light of what I just told you, I was with God before the beginning, rejoicing together, loving each other, I brought forth his will and creation, and he rejoiced over it. In light of that, listen to me. You want to please God? I was with him rejoicing before the foundations of the earth. Listen to me. You want good wisdom? I was there before the world was. Listen to me. That's the call. Listen to me. I am from the beginning. I created and set in order all of this. God rejoices in my work. Why would we go anywhere else? Or like this morning, to whom shall we go? Where will you go for wisdom? But to that which laid the foundations of the earth. Where will you go for wisdom? For life, for eternity. But to the one who God rejoiced in at the beginning of the work of his hands. Where would we go? Not just the one who laid the foundation. Listen, Christ laid the foundation of the earth. He spoke everything into existence. He brought order to our cosmos. And then later on, he brought a new creation and did it all over again in an indestructible way. To whom shall we go? To the world? Please. Please. Hollywood? No. The government? No way. Money? No. To Christ. Christ alone. Why would we follow man's wisdom, which only brought the fall in the first place? We see the depravity of man on display, don't we? When people leave the faith for trans nonsense. Don't we, don't we see that? Like, wait a minute, so you're walking away from the faith. I saw someone recently, someone I knew growing up, 
who left the faith and now is very kind enough to include their pronouns on their social media accounts. You left the only thing that makes sense and you walked into the darkness and said, I don't know what a man or woman is anymore. That's human depravity on display. That's what that is. That's nonsense. That's foolishness. Romans 1, 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That describes everybody who leaves the faith, doesn't it? They wouldn't glorify him as God. They wouldn't worship him. They got tired of him. So what did God do? He darkened their minds. He darkened their minds. We see the darkening of minds in our society today. Things even the world would have thought insane 30 years ago are being accepted today. There's no explanation for that except that God has darkened their minds in judgment that they could not see. Like Israel, he's blinded their eyes, he's covered their ears, lest they should hear and see. They're under judgment. Why did the crowd who one day was putting out palm branches and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a week later, crucify him, crucify him. You know why? Because they were under judgment. If Jesus came back right now, what do they do? They try to crucify him again. What do you see in Revelation, right? Says so Satan's loose from his prison. He goes out and gathers an army. The first thing he does is gather an army to march against the holy city and the Lord. That didn't take long. Our society hates Christ. It's divine judgment. I mentioned it this morning. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He took the richest, wisest, most decorated king in the world off his golden throne, out of his golden robes, and drove him to eat grass like an ox until he decided he'd had enough. Not Nebuchadnezzar, till God decided he had enough. I'm going to make you think that you're a cow to show you my power. You know what God's done to America today, folks? He's made them cows. He's taken away their sanity and driven them to the field to eat like animals. You want to be animals? You want to worship animals? Be an animal. That's what's happened in our society. They've rejected the ancient wisdom and gone the other way. To whom shall we go? To the wisdom that brought about the fall? To the wisdom that today is out acting like animals? No, of course not. Verse 24, we're almost done. Are we? Maybe. My wife's praying, we are. Wherefore, God also gave... Oh, I'm in the wrong... I'm sorry, not verse 24. That's backwards. Romans 124, let me read that to you. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. God has given people up in our society to do that which they wanted to do. You want the depravity? Have it. Remember the children of Israel? When they cried about the uh, manna, we want meat. Oh, he brought them meat. He brought them meat till it says it was coming out of their nostrils. They hated the meat. 
It rotted before them. God has looked at our society and said, you want sin and depravity? I'll give it to you until it's coming out of your nostrils. Listen, even some, even some wicked heathen liberals today are getting like tired of some of this woke LGBT nonsense. I heard Bill Maher, of all people, questioning it the other day. Like even some of those guys are coming like, haven't we had enough? This is getting really bad and disgusting. Yes, yes, God's going to give it to them until they get their fill and overfull, until they cry out for him again. It's like those old, remember those old shows where they catch their kids smoking and make them smoke a whole carton so they're sick of it? That's what God's done with sin in our society. Have it, have it all. Give yourselves wholly to it until one day you're so sick of it. That's what's happened. God has given up much of secular society to wallow in the uncleanness that they wanted so bad. He ends that verse. I'll ask where we are now. Verse 32. With blessed are they that keep my ways. This reminds me of uh, the verse earlier. God's wisdom is a tree of life. Earlier in this chapter, the fruit of his tree. Turn real quickly to Psalm chapter 1. God's wisdom is a tree of life. We all know this passage, but let's read it. Psalm 1 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night, for he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. God's wisdom is a tree of life, a blessed tree that gets all the water it needs, that bears fruit faithfully. Go back to Proverbs chapter 8. We finished 32. Now therefore hearken ye unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. That is those who abide not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the way of the scornful. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. Verse 33. Hear instruction and be wise, and refuse it not. We have again the call of wisdom. Verse 34. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. So he says, blessed or happy is the man that hears God's wisdom. Not everyone hears God's wisdom. This means to listen and to heed. Not just to have it go in one ear and out the other, but to listen and to strive to do the wisdom of God. That's why Jesus says several times in the Gospels and in Revelation, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear. There were some in those churches that didn't have an ear to hear. We need to seek God to have that ear. An important prayer when you read your Bible is not just, you know, I've prayed those prayers where it's like, you know, Lord, you know, teach me something in the Bible today or reveal. I've kind of brought myself to a place now where I just pray, Lord, give me ears to hear. I don't want just smarts to be able to understand the passage. I want to hear it, take it in here, and apply it. There's a difference between hearing 
and hearing. You know what I mean? Like, I, I love to use my kids as an example. But sometimes you tell them something, and they hear you, and they ignore you. There's times you pull them aside, you go eye to eye. You say, I want you to hear me. Listen to this. Get this down, or there'll be consequences. This is not a small thing. You're not to do that anymore. Hear me. I don't want to just be smart in the Bible or know the Bible. I want to apply the Bible. When you approach the Word of God this week, don't just say, God, help me to understand. Say, God, give me ears to hear. Ears, that means a heart to apply what I'm reading. Otherwise, we're just learning. And God's not pleased that we know facts. He's not pleased that we can quote a thousand verses if we're not living what we're putting in our hearts. He's pleased with application of his word, not knowledge of his word. You know who can quote you the entire Bible? Satan. Always out of context, but he, he can quote it. He knows it. He's had 4,000 years or so to memorize it. But what Satan doesn't do and can't do is apply it to his life. He doesn't have ears to hear. Hear instruction, refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, that applies it. Watching daily at my gates, the one is blessed who not only hears and heeds, but does so diligently. Diligently. This is not a one-time action. That's why he says, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. He's diligent. It's ongoing. It's every day. A continuous seeking of God's wisdom. Imagine, you probably weren't nerds like me, but imagine a student waiting at the door of the schoolroom be the first one in to get started on the lecture. That's something I probably would have done. I actually enjoyed learning and enjoyed school. I enjoy preaching. If I go to hear a preacher or go to a, a seminar, I try to be there early, get a good seat. I want to hear. I want to listen. That's what God's saying. Not just somebody who reads the word, but daily is anxious can't wait to go to bed. So I go to bed, I get up and get to read the Bible. Can't wait for my lunch break because on my lunch break, I'm going to pray. I got my prayer list ready to go. I can't wait to get home tonight. We're going to have family. We're going to read our Bible. We're going to I cannot wait for Sunday because we get to be in church on Sunday. That's what he's talking about, that anxiousness, that diligence. It's not casual to this person. Blessed is the one who is not a casual Christian, but anxious. What has God got for us today? Verse 35, for whoso findeth me, findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Those who find the wisdom of God find life. This brings to mind John 1, 4, in him was life, and this life was the light of man. Or Jesus' famous word to John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Those who find him obtain what? The favor of the Lord, the Father. 
First John 5, verse 11 says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Those who find Christ find life. Eternal life is with Christ. It's in Christ. The sum of God's wisdom leads to eternal life. It leads to Christ. Those who find me find life, wisdom says. And they obtain favor of the Lord. The Father, as I said before, is eternally pleased with the Son. He favors His Son exceedingly. Those who find Christ and find in Christ life obtain that favor from the Lord. The favor of the Son is on us if we are in the Son. The love of God the Father for the Son is on us if we are in the Son. We are united to Him and we share in all that He receives from the Father. Verse 36, last one. He that sinned against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Those who choose sin over righteousness, all those who choose foolishness over the wisdom of God hurt themselves. They're condemning their own souls by their ignorance. All those who hate God's wisdom that is found in Christ and the gospel love death. This means they choose eternal destruction. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Let me sum this up. Christ is the wisdom of God. He's the wisdom of God. From before time began, Christ was there. The Father delights in the Son, and he delights in those who love the Son. Christ is valuable. His fruit is everlasting life. Christ is calling to mankind. Many choose not to listen. The message to us is choose Christ Choose life, refuse Christ, and condemn your own soul. Because he is life, he is the wisdom of God. If God delights in the Son, which means he delights in us who are saved, what does that mean for the unsaved? God hates them. He, they do not dwell within his love. He does not take pleasure in them. So our duty, church is to stand in the place of Christ. Remember, he can't be here. We beseech you in Christ's stead, right? So instead of Christ, he can't be here. He's in heaven. We're beseeching you. Be reconciled to God. We are to stand at the store or the Japanese restaurant or the hospital or Wilson Park or Dondo Pier or Hollywood Boulevard or... I forgot the name of the city now. Tijuana, Mexico. Everywhere we are, we are to stand there like, like the wisdom of God and call out, come, come choose wisdom. Come to Christ. Partake of him. Be blessed, receive the favor of the Lord. It's our task to continue that call in our generation. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you tonight as we finish off this great chapter which has pointed us to Christ. May we be vigilant to have ears to hear, to apply the word of God. May we be a voice for Christ in this world, calling out his wisdom. Leave your folly, leave your foolishness. Come on the path of wisdom. God favors his son. Be reconciled to his son. May we who are here bear the fruit of everlasting life. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for Christ who has called us out of darkness into light, who has shined his glorious light in our hearts. May we ever follow that wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.